We mentioned today's Father's Day. It's also another holiday. More recently recognized as a federal holiday. It's a holiday called Juneteenth. I think about Juneteenth. I think about what Acts 17.26 teaches us. That we all came from one man. We all came from one man. And while I will be the first to speak against the racist propaganda in critical race theory. I will also be the first to say, while I believe black lives matter as much as any other life, I stand against many of the other emphases in that movement. I will also be the first, and I believe believers should be the first to stand with our African American brothers and sisters when it's appropriate. And I believe today is one of those days. Maybe you're saying, what is Juneteenth? <laughs> I've been learning the past couple years. I'll confess, a couple years ago, I did not. I'll, I'll share just a brief history. June 19th, 1865, federal troops showed up in Galveston, Texas to, to take control of the state of Texas and ensure that all slaves in that state were freed. This was two and a half years after the Emancipation Proclamation. It was also two months after Robert E. Lee had surrendered at Appomattox. But slavery remained relatively untouched in the state of Texas until U.S. General Gordon Granger came. And what happened that day, the day we know is Juneteenth now, he read General Orders Number 3, quote, the people of Texas are informed that in accordance with a proclamation from the executive of the United States, all slaves are free. What a wonderful day. What a wonderful day, but I think about that day and I also think about an important question. Having been set free from slavery, who in their right mind would go back. I bring up that question because it's the same question Paul had in his mind for the church at Galatia spiritually. Having been set free in Christ, who in their right mind would go back under the slavery of legalism? A legalism that would seek to earn or keep their salvation by human works. In their case, it was going back underneath the law of Moses. But it rears its head today any time we think we must add to the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ to be saved or stay saved, to be made right with God or to get to heaven. And it's tragic when believers begin to buy into that because though I believe their salvation is secure in Christ, there are some other things that are lost. When we fall under that lie of the slavery of legalism, our assurance goes out the window because there's always one more thing to do or not do. I believe our joy goes out the window because we don't know for sure if we're going to be in heaven one day. And I believe when you take those two things out of a believer's life, you also lose your power. 
to live for his kingdom here because it's cut off at the lakes by fear. My Bible says we've not been given a spirit of fear, but that's exactly where the legalistic spirit leads to. That's where we find ourselves in Galatians. It's no wonder at the end of last week's passage in Galatians 4, Paul writes to these Galatians. He, he had gone there. He had preached freedom in Christ alone, and now they're buying into this lie of legalism. And he says, I am perplexed about you. You have anybody in your life you've ever felt that way about? I'm perplexed about you. That's how he was feeling about these Galatians. And he's going to continue to say, don't, don't do it. Hold on to freedom in Christ. And he's going to start with a history lesson. Verse 21, Galatians 4. If you have your Bibles, turn there. History. He says, tell me, you Galatians who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? And when he uses law here, he's thinking bigger picture than just the rules that Moses got. You know, there's another meaning of law. It can refer to those first five books in our Bible, right? Genesis through Deuteronomy. So this is brilliant. As he's inspired by the Holy Spirit, he says, you're using the law to go back under it. I'm going to show you something from the very source you're referring to to show you y'all wrong. It's brilliant logic. He's going to go to Genesis, specifically Genesis 12 to 22, where we have the account of Abraham and Sarah. And I would really encourage you, if you have time this afternoon or this week, read those 10 chapters. It's going to bring this whole thing to life for you. I did that a couple times this week. It'll really round it out. But he sums it up here, verse 22. He says, it's written that Abraham had two sons. He had more than that, but he's going to focus in on two. He had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Now, if you know your biblical history or you spent some time in Sunday school, who was the son of the slave woman? Ishmael. And who was his mother? Who was the son of the free woman? Isaac. And who was the free woman? Sarah. That's absolutely right. So I'm going to start with, he, he describes these two boys as two different ways. One was born according to the flesh, right? That's Ishmael. The other was born according to promise. That's Isaac. Let's start with Ishmael. According to the flesh, what in the world does that mean? Okay, well, Remember, God came to Abraham, a, a childless man, in Genesis 12 and said, you're going to have many descendants, and through you I will bless the entire world. Now, that's a tall order there, even at the beginning, for a guy who doesn't have any children. But if you remember the story, it goes on not only for years, but for decades before Isaac comes along. There's waiting involved. Any of you ever experienced waiting in your walk? Do you like it? Do you find it confusing sometimes? Put yourself in Abraham and Sarah's shoes. I think as the years went by and the clock was ticking, they did what we sometimes do. They thought, hey, that was nice of God to made that, make that promise to us. But God needs some help. God needs my help. And you see this play out in several ways. 
throughout their history. One time, Abraham thinks God needs an idea. He knows the child is going to come through him. And he's looking around. He still doesn't have kids. And he says, hey, I got a leaser here, God. He's my slave. How's about you make him my heir? Yeah, I'm helping. God says, no. Abraham, it's going to come through you. Now, in their defense, God did not yet specify it was going to be through Sarah. Okay, so they decide together. Sarah, Sarah cooks up an idea. Not only are we going to give God ideas, we're going we're gonna to really help him. Abraham, we got Hagar here, a slave girl. How's about you go to bed with her, have a child with Hagar, and, and that way we'll help God out, right? You remember what happened. They had Ishmael, and all of a sudden there's a lot of tension in the house, right? Ishmael's mother, Hagar, is walking around vaunting her superiority over Sarah because she's had a child and Sarah didn't. So they sent her out temporarily into the desert with Ishmael. Ishmael and Hagar come back home. Now, let's go to Isaac. He was not born according to the flesh. He was born according to promise as the son of the free woman. By the time you get to Genesis 18 or so, and Abraham's 100, and Sarah is 90, the Bible tells us in biblical words, the way of women had ceased with her. I'm going to break that down. That means, you, humanly speaking, you ain't having no more children. Okay? So it, it took away all possibility of their helping God in any way. It put them in what was, humanly speaking, an impossible situation. In fact, you remember, they both laughed. It was that preponderous. Abraham laughed, and then, then Sarah laughed. But then guess what happened? Little Isaac, little laughter. God has a sense of humor. <laughs> his name means laughter. He was, he was born, this child, according to promise by his power and his power alone. Their part in that was simply coming around to believe God's word and take it at face value. Now, I, I see a couple of things just from Paul's, uh, Paul's history lesson here. One, how many of you have discovered that our walk of faith is not always according to our timetable? Found that many times in my life, as I'm sure you have. This assures us that God's plan, God's plan is always better. It's always perfect. He works all things together for the good of those who love him. Will we be faithful enough to trust him in that? Maybe his timing's different right now in your life. Will you trust him? Second thing I think about when it comes to salvation and walking in God's power, God doesn't need your help. God doesn't need my help. You know what he wants? He wants our hearts. And the way we give him our hearts is by faith, by trusting, by taking him at his word and trusting. Guess what happens then? The risen Christ, the Holy Spirit begins to live his life through us, doing what was otherwise humanly impossible. But he's not going to stop, stop with the history here. He's going to go on to use it to give us an analogy, these Galatians, as well as us today. Verse 24, 
says this may be interpreted allegorically. What? The story of Abraham. That's not to say it didn't happen in history. He's saying the Holy Spirit showed me there's some deeper lessons in that story of Abraham that apply to you, Galatians, as you think about going back under the legalism of the law versus walking in freedom in Christ. He says these women... Hagar and Sarah are two covenants. We've been talking about those covenants a lot in this book, the covenant of law and the covenant of promise, right? He's saying these these women symbolize those covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now, Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. What happened at Mount Sinai? God gave the law to his people, right? He's saying Hagar, this slave woman who had a son in slavery, represents Mount Sinai. He also says she corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. Now, what was the status of Jerusalem at this time? They were under what? Roman occupation. Jerusalem was not free. In fact, not long after Paul wrote this letter, it was raised to the ground by the Romans. That's why it's a fitting fitting picture here. She's in slavery with her children. But, verse 26, the Jerusalem above is free and she is our mother. What's he talking about? The new Jerusalem that one day is going to come down to the new heavens and the new earth, the city of God. That's what believers today are citizens of. We're citizens of new Jerusalem. He says that Jerusalem is free. She's our mother. So that would correspond, obviously, to Sarah in the story, right? But as you think about Mount Sinai and you think about the New Jerusalem, I'm so thankful that we have this whole book. In fact, as Dave Gorgas and I were talking, he brought up a beautiful passage in Hebrews that helps us unpack the contrast between Sinai and the New Jerusalem. So I'd invite you to turn with me and and watch Remember, Hebrews was written to Christians who were being persecuted, Christians who were thinking about turning back because it was so intense, but the author's encouraging them, stand firm in Christ, okay? Now, watch the contrast. First, he's going to talk about Sinai, then he's going to talk about the New Jerusalem. Hebrews 12, 18. He says, hey, believers, you have not come to what may be touched, now, before I go any further in the description of Sinai, I want to ask you a question. If you were to strip away everything in your religious life that can be touched, what would be left? Granted, Jesus himself gave us some things that, that can be touched. Communion, baptism, were called the works that could be seen and touched. But if you were to strip all that away, What would be left? Would there be anything left? Would there be a relationship of of faith with God through Jesus? Because what does Paul tell us in Corinthians? We walk by faith, not by by sight. The author says, you've not come to what may be touched. And then he describes what could be touched. What happened at Mount Sinai when the law was given? A blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest. And the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. It was so terrifying. So they said, please stop. 
Please stop. For they could not endure the order that was given. What was that order? If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. So if you've ever thought you would have liked to have been there that day, you might want to rethink that. This was a traumatic and fearful event. He says, you've not come to that. What have believers in Christ come to? Verse 22, you've come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels and festal gathering and to the assembly of the firstborn. Who's the firstborn? Jesus, the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect and most precious of all to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. That's what we've come to, believers in Jesus Christ. Did you know that? Are you enjoying that today? I've got to ask you a question. He says you come to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. What did the blood of Abel speak? Remember in Genesis, Cain killed Abel? God said, his blood cries out to me, Cain. Essentially, I'm going to sum it up. It cried out to God, you're guilty, Cain. You're guilty. He says, you've come not to the blood of Abel. You've come to a sprinkled blood that speaks a better word. What blood is that? That's the blood of Jesus Christ. You've come to him in faith. No longer does it say, say guilty. It says you are forgiven. You're forgiven. An important question for all of us to ask is whose blood is crying out over your life? Abel, and by extension, the blood of the law, which can only cry guilty if you're trying to be made right with God by what you do or don't do. Or is it the blood of Jesus, which cries out, forgiven? <coughs> he goes on with a complex passage from Isaiah 54. We're back in Galatians 4.27. Paul says, For it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Now, if you're like me, you read that. Where are you going here, Paul? So I dove into a little bit read some who know much more than I do and what many of them believe Isaiah was doing. He's writing to the Israelites who are in captivity because of their sin. They're the, the desolate ones, the ones who do not bear. They're in exile, right? They're in slavery. It's a brutal place to be. It's very dark. So he contrasts that person, the one who does not bear, with the one who has a husband. Who's the one who has a husband? Many believe that's referring to Israel in the land of Israel before they went into exile. And what God is telling the people, hard as it must have been to, be, to believe, is that you people in captivity, one day you're going to be restored. And when you're restored, you're going to have more descendants than you did when you were in the promised land. Can you imagine how hard that would have been to believe at that moment? But then you look back and say, was it fulfilled? And how? Yes. They were restored to their land. And one of their descendants, a young virgin named Mary, 
the Holy Spirit came upon her and Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah was born and his followers have what? Spread around the entire world. Yes, it was fulfilled. That reminds us of something. A Christianity is not an abortion of the Jewish faith, but a, a completion of it. So as Paul tells us in Romans 11, there is no place to be arrogant towards the Jews, even the unbelieving ones. He says, we don't support the root. The root supports us. What's the root? It's the completion of the Abrahamic covenant in that root out of dry ground, Jesus Christ, who is as Jewish as they come. So he's going to go from the history to this analogy to say, all right, maybe what you're wondering, how does this affect my current reality? <laughs> well, that's pretty deep stuff, Paul. What am I going to take home to practice tomorrow? Okay. Maybe the Galatians were wondering that. Maybe you are. This is where he gets into it. He looks at them, looks, would look at believers today, verse 28, and he says, Now you brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. Children of promise. You're only a believer in Jesus Christ because of the awesome work of God in your life. And the only thing you did to be there is to receive it by faith. You're a child of promise. Verse 29, and we're going to get into four bullet points here of their current reality and ours. He says, but just as at that time, he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the spirit, so also it is now. What happened in Abraham's family Ishmael grew up, he was a teenager, and it was time for an important ceremony for young Isaac. And the Bible tells us that Ishmael laughed at him. Most believe it was in mockery of young Isaac. There was tension in the household. And this led God to tell Abraham and Sarah to send Hagar and Ishmael out for good. He said, I'll take care of them, but get them out of your household. Send them out. So now he's going to say, hey, just as at that time Ishmael persecuted Isaac, so also it is now. What does that mean? Believers who hold on to the truth of the gospel of salvation in Jesus Christ alone will continue to be persecuted by those who will not embrace that gospel because they are blinded by their own tradition or the law or something else. What happened to Jesus? Who were his most intense persecutors? Was it not the religious leaders? What about the apostles in the book of Acts? They didn't run in trouble with Rome till later. At the beginning, it was the Sanhedrin. There were some Jews who came to Christ, right? Paul among them, Peter, Matthew. But those who would not let go of history and tradition to see that it pointed to Christ were their most virulent Persecutors. What about Paul? Who gave him a lot of his trouble when he showed up in a city and preached salvation in Christ alone? It was the Jews who would not receive that and thought he was an abomination. Now it was happening to the Galatians. Look at church history. When someone dares stand on the word of God alone, 
where does some of the most intense persecution often come from? Others under the so-called banner of Christianity, who rather than taking what the word of God has plainly said, hold to their tradition and bring the hammer down on those who don't. He says it's the same today. If you hold on to the truth of salvation and freedom in Christ alone, you will be persecuted. That leads to the second point. When these legalists show up in your church, you cannot allow their teaching in your church. You cannot allow their teaching in your home. Verse 30, what does the scripture say? Going back to Abraham, cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. Of course, we, we meet these people and we do our best to share that freedom is in Christ and Christ alone, right? We love them just like we love everybody else. But what's he saying here? If they continue to preach the false doctrine that you must add anything to the cross of Christ for salvation, you must put up a boundary. Put an end to their influence in your home and in your church because it is from the pit of hell. You cannot allow their teaching in the church. Number three, this is kind of heavy. You'll be happy for this one. Be encouraged. There is an inheritance coming for all who are free in Christ. It's right in the same verse there. The son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. You may be going through it like crazy today. But someday you're going to enter into that inheritance and that glory is going to far outweigh any suffering on this side. In fact, Jesus promised reward for those who will stand firm to the gospel of salvation in Jesus alone. There's an inheritance coming. Be encouraged. And finally, stand for your freedom. Guard your freedom in Christ. It's verse 31 and 5.1. So brothers, we are not children of the slave. But of the free woman, for freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. You're free. So stop living like a slave. Do you hear it? Don't go back. Even if it costs you your life, don't go back. Some of you remember the picture of William Wallace as he was being tortured in that movie for the freedom of Scotland. And right in the middle of the torture, he stays firm to the end and he says, freedom! We need some William Wallaces in the church that will not go back to a yoke of slavery that will say, no, I'm called to live with assurance and joy and power because when he said it is finished, he meant it. Beyond William Wallace, I think of our Savior himself. Hebrews tells us we're to set our eyes on him. Think of the lengths he went to, the blood he spilled to stand for your freedom and mine till the bitter end. When he said those precious words, it is finished, paid, in full. Don't go back. A couple closing thoughts. All of this makes me think about three things. One, 
the limits of human works and wisdom. I think in all of life, human works and wisdom has limited value, okay? You've been here long enough, you've seen that. So there's some situations where it has some value, but it's limited, right? But when it comes to salvation, when it comes to being made right with God, when it comes to getting to heaven, human works and wisdom have no place at all in the equation. Paul makes that clear in 1 Corinthians 1, 21. He says, in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. That is, the world did not know God through human wisdom. It wasn't something we could figure it out, cook up on our own, and climb to get there. It doesn't work that way. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. Why does he call it folly? Because that's what it seems like to those who don't believe. You preach salvation in a man who died on a cross and rose again, a lot of people are going to look at you like you're crazy. Verse 22, Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. It's obviously speaking poetically there. God has no foolishness or weakness. I like where he closes in verse 31. But the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. When it comes to salvation, human works and wisdom have nothing to say. Next, I want to look at the unlimited ability of God's works. God's words, God's wisdom. You, you can trace it all through the Bible. Start at the beginning. Go back to Genesis 1. This is 1-3. God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that light was good. He spoke the power of God's word, his works, his wisdom. I'm reading John in my quiet time lately. You get to John 4. You remember there was an official with a sick son, wanted Jesus to come. Jesus said, I'm not coming, but go. Your son will live. And then he got back home and he heard his son was getting better from his servants. In verse 52, it says, he asked them the hour when he began to get better. And they said to him, yesterday. At the seventh hour, the fever left him. The father knew that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, your son will live. And he himself believed in all his household. Yeah. And then the very next chapter, Jesus takes the power of his voice to eternal matters, such as salvation and resurrection. John 5, 25. Truly I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. I believe that's talking about salvation. As he came and proclaimed the gospel, the Holy Spirit brought it to life in people's hearts, and they, they came to salvation. Later on in the chapter, he talks about a physical resurrection, the power of his voice. John 5, 28, an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. They'll hear his voice and come out. I was in a cemetery on Tuesday as my grandfather was buried. I'm telling you, I could do all the yelling to those folks I want. Nobody's coming out of the ground. But Jesus speaks a word and they all come out. In fact, some have laughingly said it's a good thing when he told Lazarus to come out that he said Lazarus. <laughs> that he specified. Because otherwise it would have been everybody. 
That's the power of his voice. And then you, you bring that, his power to salvation. To salvation. Think of what's said in Romans 1.16. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. His works, his wisdom, his word is unlimited. Our only place is to, to, to believe, to receive. No wonder when the Lord showed up in Genesis 18, and he told Abraham and Sarah, and Abraham laughed, and then Sarah laughed. And you remember what he said in Genesis 18, 14? Is anything too hard for the Lord? I love that question. And you know the answer, and so do I. No. No. Also love the human side of what happened next. He had told Sarah, you laughed. Verse 15, it says, Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh. For she was afraid. He said, no, but you did laugh. <laughs> Talk about awkward. <laughs> but it makes me thankful for God's grace too. <laughs> right? He, he works with us fallen vessels by faith. Where does this leave us? Our limited wisdom and works. His unlimited wisdom and works. It leads us to lay aside all of our pride. Lay it down. It's the humble man that accesses God's salvation by faith and by faith alone. That's why Paul says in Romans 9, verse 30, What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is a righteousness that is by faith. It's by faith. But that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. See, they missed, many of them, that the law and the prophets were to point to the Savior, not to save them. He says they've stumbled over the stumbling stone. Who's the stumbling stone? Jesus Christ. Why is he a stumbling stone? to much of humanity because receiving him requires humility. It requires us to say, I need a savior. I read a couple things about lifeguards recently. I read that there's a lifeguard in California making $500,000 a year. I thought, wow, that's pretty good. I also read that many lifeguards, if someone's drowning, they will not attempt to rescue the person until that person stops trying to save themselves. They will tell them, stop flailing. Stop flailing your arms. Stop flailing your legs. It's dangerous. When they stop trying to save themselves, the lifeguard swoops in. You can't save yourself. I can't save myself. We need to come to that point of humility where we say, I need a savior. I love a poem that I read this week. And again, it's from Pilgrim's Progress, book two. So, so many nuggets in there. It's about humility. Listen to this. It says, he who is down need fear no fall. He who is low, no pride. He who is humble shall ever have God to be his guide. It's powerful. It's the humility that leads to faith. It says, I need what only you can offer. And I love as we close on Father's Day. 
And for those who trust in Jesus Christ, God is more than just our guide. He's our, our Abba, Father. We've read that in Galatians 4, 6. You are sons and daughters. God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. As we close, I want to say, listen, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ this morning, you are a free son or daughter of God. Don't forget it. And don't go back. Rest fully on that and walk out of here in assurance and joy and power. And if you're not, come to the foot of the cross where you can settle that once and for all. I'll close with the lyrics from an old slave song in America. Oh, freedom, oh, freedom, oh, freedom over me. And before I'd be a slave, I'd be buried in my grave and go home to my Lord and be free. Father, thank you so much for this powerful word from the Apostle Paul inspired by your Holy Spirit. I thank you for the ways he looks back and shows us how your word is a perfect unit. It's all inspired of you. And Lord, I pray that we would remember the lessons we've learned here today. And it's not by our human wisdom or works. That only leads us to fret and fear and futility. It's by faith in your word, your wisdom, your works that we are made right with God. And I pray that any believer in this room that, that lacks that assurance in Jesus Christ today, that lacks that joy, that rest, that power, that you would break the shackles off of them. If it's a lie from the enemy himself, if it's a lie from their flesh, if it's a lie from a false teacher, help them break those shackles and press once more into the freedom of Jesus Christ. And I pray that you would draw any who say, I need that freedom to the foot of the cross. It's the cr cross that we remember now. We thank you for your precious gift, your unspeakable gift of, of Jesus Christ. And I pray as we share this moment of communion, going back to what we talked about earlier, that it would be more than just something we could touch, but a reflection of a vibrant living faith in our awesome God, a reflection of our humility and gratitude for a Savior who did what we could not. In his name we pray. Amen.